Hi, everyone. Glad to see you. Welcome. So our bumper video sets up this series as Life in the Spirit, and that's a good deal of what we're going to focus on this morning. I would love to invite you to pray with me as we come into this. Lord, here is your church. We've brought all of us. We've brought everything about us. We've brought all our thoughts and feelings. We've got them all in their closets and cupboards exactly where you know they are. We come into your presence today, Lord, out of busy lives, and it's our desire to enter a holy place, a sanctuarial and sacred place where we could meet with you, the holy and beautiful and loving God, and where you would meet with each of us by your spirit, just as each of us needs. So we invite you. Lord, we're grieved and anxious about the state of the world. We pray, Lord, that you would be bringing peace. We're mindful, Lord, that there are wars in waiting in all of our hearts because of our fear and our insecurities. And sometimes just one provocation turns the wars of waiting into the shooting and the shouting. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, to give peace to us in our innermost being. Peace to leaders around the world who make decisions. Peace to people around the world. And so we invite you, Lord Jesus Christ, Prince of Peace. Be our guide and our Lord today in your name. Amen. So last week we started our series, Romans 8.1 starts out with this magnificent statement, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We had these uh, decal stickers made up and we had this idea, if you weren't here with us last week, that you could like put this on your bathroom mirror and what if you then could see yourself through these words, that was the idea. And we ran out of them last week so we ordered more. And if you would like them, I understand they're at the Connect desk, the welcome desk, unless we've run out of them again, in which case we'll order more. So I don't know if you feel this. The studies would suggest that you do. And I feel this in various ways. A lot of Americans are struggling with this. But it's a hard struggle to define because of the very nature of what it is. What it is is a sense of disconnected drifting. How do you describe drifting? Drifting seems to be an absence rather than a presence. But there's lots of information these days that say that as Americans, we have this inner struggle with a sense of disconnection and drifting. We don't feel deeply attached to places, to meaning, maybe to God. We live in a culture that races through stuff or skims over top of it. We have a bunch of boxes we could check. For instance, work, check. Fun and entertainment, check. Social media scrolling, check. 
deep-rooted relationships and a deeply settled identity, not checked. So we come into Romans chapter 8, beginning with no condemnation, moving us through the end of the chapter that takes us to no separation from God, and then all of the teaching in between of what this life in Christ looks like, which is brought to us by the Holy Spirit. And this is where we focus today. Romans 8, 9 through 17 says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So much content in Romans chapter 8 is going to be about the Holy Spirit. And it's easy to read the chapter and be looking for certain things and miss the full presence in the teaching of the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I want to submit today is that living in a rich relationship with the Holy Spirit is normal Christianity. Like that's what Christianity is when we live it in a normal Christianity way. Now, I don't know if that rings true for you, depending on if you've been in church or not. We have lots of people at Hope who come who have not been in church before, which are many of my favorite people. Some of what we're going to talk about today in terms of the ministry of the Holy Spirit may be quite foreign to you. For others, you've had various backgrounds in church, some where there was no mention ever of the Holy Spirit, others where the Holy Spirit was the only one ever mentioned, and there's not much mention of God the Father or of Christ. So what we're going to get is we're going to get this teaching about the normal Christian life, which is living fully in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So let's start with a couple of basic questions. I think these are the kinds of things we ask. Who is the Holy Spirit? Okay, and you note that we're beginning with the pronoun who, and we're not using the word what, because the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always a he. He's a person. He's not an it. So I don't say, well, the Holy Spirit, it comes upon us. The Holy Spirit is a he who dwells within us, the scriptures tell us. The Holy Spirit is called a number of different things in the Bible, but they all mean this same one we're talking about. You'll hear the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 
the spirit of Christ, the spirit of holiness, all of them are speaking about the presence of God. And this could, I suppose, get a little confusing because you want to say, well, is this Jesus? Is it God? Is it the Holy Spirit? And the answer, of course, you know, is yes. And this is how the Holy Spirit, as a member of the Trinity, is always expressing and moving and working interactively with the other members of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the real and spiritual presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. If you know the New Testament, you may remember that Jesus taught the disciples before he was getting ready to ascend to heaven, and they were sad and anxious that he was going to leave. And he said, paraphrased, it's better that I do, because I can be with you always when my spirit comes upon you. But when I'm here in physical form, I don't have that full capacity of all places, all times. The Holy Spirit is a real and spiritual presence. Right there, I think most of us want to say, now hold on a minute, real and spiritual presence? I mean, I was the kid in class who's like, can you explain that to me please for a minute? Because it sounds like churchy words that we're all supposed to nod to when all of us are like, hmm, what does that like really mean? What are you talking about? We live in a predominantly physically experienced life. This table, we think it's real because it's solid, it's physical, it's right here, it's got weight and mass. Our bodies, they seem real to us. We can touch them and feel them, and that seems real to us. Spiritual eh, doesn't seem so real to us. However, we are made by God who is spirit. The Bible is quite clear about this. In John chapter 4, when Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, now God is spirit, and he's looking for those who worship him in spirit and truth. So God is spirit, We're going to do a little theological math. And God made everything, everything that we see, including these bodies and this table and everything physical. So if God is spirit and he made everything physical, then the spiritual is the realer and the physical is the derived. The physical comes from God who is spiritual. But we want to say, no, the physical is the realer. That's what we know. It's what we can touch, what we can stand on. But the reality is God is spirit and he made the physical. So the spiritual is the realer, which means I think for most of us, there's a nice invitation here for us to grow into what spiritual really means. Now, most of us could say, all right, all right, I'm with you. God is spirit. But almost all of us will immediately assign a long gray beard to a guy sitting on a big gold chair because we got to do something with this spirit idea because we're just not sure how to make the spiritual real. Much of what Paul's gonna talk about in Romans 8 is trying to help us understand how the spiritual is real and that the Holy Spirit is the real and spiritual presence of God. The Holy Spirit loves God. The Holy Spirit honors God. The Holy Spirit loves what God loves. Very simple theological math. That means if the Holy Spirit is in us, we would love God, we would honor God, and we would love what God loves. Okay, legalist alert, because there's a lot of need for the legalist to be given some comfort here, because as soon as I say, if the Holy Spirit is in you, you'll love God, you'll honor God, and you'll love what God loves, the legalists are going to be like, ah, I I know I'm going to sin. I know I'm going to foul up. That must mean the Holy Spirit's not in me. No, no, no. If you weren't here last week, find a way to come to last week, because... 
It starts with Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you desire to please God, the Holy Spirit is in you. Neither you nor I are going to get it just right. It's the desire that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's ministry. Okay, so he's going to start out by giving this dichotomy about living in the flesh and living in the spirit. In Romans 8, 7, which sets us up to get to where we are today, you have this very simple, very clear statement. I don't think it's hard to understand, but it could be a little bit hard to accept. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So Paul's going to talk about a life in the flesh and a life in the spirit. And what he's going to say is the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It's opposed to God. It has no acceptance for God. It's an atheist or it's a God rejecter one way, shape, or form. It's a person who is setting themselves up as their own superior, but the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. All of us begin in the flesh. It is not natural for us to have a heart that loves and desires to serve God. That happens when a lot of changes take place in our lives. So he talks about living in the flesh. Living in the flesh is a person who basically either says, or they're too polite to say it, but they harbor it internally. I'm my own person. I'm living my own life, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. No person, no God has authority in my life like that. That's living in the flesh. You know, when you say something like that, when we say these types of things that have these strong sentiments, hey, I'm my own man, I do my own thing. I'm my own guy, I live my own life, right? And we're all supposed to go, yeah. It feels full of bravado for the moment. And like all sin... For a moment, it gives that short, strong feeling that feels good. But in time, when its fundamental falseness is revealed, that short-term, strong feeling that feels good starts going away because the fundamental truth of what actually exists starts shining through. Now, that fundamental truth of what actually exists might not show up with a placard and describe to you how you got it wrong. But for people who pay attention, you begin to realize things like this. A person who says, I am my own person. I do my own thing. Nobody, no God tells me what to do. The fundamental falseness of that will show up in time with broken relationships, with living alone, with offending people right and left, with not having anybody who really is close to you or intimate with you. Because we've said this in the past at Hope. None of us are self-made, so none of us is the Lord of our own lives. None of us creates our own identity because none of us made ourselves. We're made by God who created us. But it can feel good in the flesh to say, I'm oh man, I do my own thing. Nobody tells me what to do. No person, no God. That strong, short-term feeling feels good for a while until the fundamental falseness of it begins to reveal itself over the course of time. So let's set up a little like T ledger. I don't know if you ever took accounting in school, but let's set up like a T ledger, two columns. There's the flesh column and there's the spirit column. Life in the flesh, life in the spirit. And I'm gonna describe six items. 
who we serve, what we desire, what is our vision, to whom we belong, what is our relational status, and what's our eternal destiny. When we are in the flesh, who we serve, that's me. I serve me. When we're in the spirit, who we serve is God. When we're in the flesh, what I desire is whatever my sin wants. When I'm in the spirit, what I desire is what God wants. When I'm in the flesh, my vision of life is self-centered. I am the sun in the galaxy of my world and everything and everyone else orbits around me. When I am in the spirit, my vision is God-centered. When I'm in the flesh, my relational belonging is just to myself. I'm my own man. I belong to myself. When I'm in the spirit, my relational belonging is to God. When I'm in the flesh, my relational status, so to speak, is I'm drifting because I'm not attached in any way. When I'm in the spirit, my status is that I'm attached to God. When I'm in the flesh, my eternity is just what my whole life has been, on my own, apart from God. When I'm in the spirit, my eternity is in relationship with God. So we're getting this living in the flesh, living in the spirit picture here. To live in the spirit then is to be yielded to God and his desires. Legalist alert. Some of you are saying, but I know I'm going to have some moments when I don't do it right. And what I want is something that I want. And I know it's disregarding God. I understand that. But you wouldn't even care about that if the Holy Spirit wasn't alive in your life. You wouldn't even care about it. Somebody once said, I never had a problem with sin until I became a Christian. It's 100% true. Because before you have any relationship with the Holy Spirit who calls your heart to serve God, you never even gave it a second thought. You just didn't care about it. Okay, so when we are in the Spirit, we have moved from I am my own man or woman to my heart and my life belong to God. So here's an interesting thing. Living in the flesh... We have this immediate, short-term, strong feeling of bravado. I'm my own man. But a long-term disillusionment when that facade shows itself. Coming into life in Christ, for most people, will have an immediate challenge when I say, I'm not the Lord of my own life. I'm giving up the reins of it. It has an immediate challenge, but that becomes a long-term beauty as we're growing into the truth that this is real. I am not my own man, and I do belong to God, right? So in the flesh, I've got this short-term bravado and long-term brokenness. And when I come into the spirit, I've got this short-term brokenness of my own will, which is not easy for most of us, but this long-term beauty of growing into life with God. Okay, so here's another question that a lot of people will ask. How do I know if the Holy Spirit is in me? I'm going to give a couple little indicators here. First, you say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That it's a sincere yes. You say yes to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Nobody can say yes to Jesus Christ and mean it unless the Holy Spirit has brought that about. It is not our nature as human beings to say yes to God and his lordship in our lives unless something has brought about that change in us. 
right? So in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it says it this simply. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, I don't know, maybe you have a parrot and your parrot talks and you teach the parrot to say Jesus is Lord just for kicks. So you walk in the house, parrot's like, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. The parrot has no ministry of the Holy Spirit going on in his life. He can say the words, but there's nothing happening. To say Jesus is Lord and mean it, this only happens because the Holy Spirit brings us about in our lives. Whatever your story, however long or short it took, this only happens when the Holy Spirit brings us about in our lives. How else do I know I have the Holy Spirit? I have a love for God. Imperfect, yes, but it's the prevailing setting of my heart. How do I know I have the Holy Spirit within me? I have a desire to serve and honor God. Imperfectly, yes, but it's the prevailing narrative of my heart. Okay, sometimes what we get is a challenging what seems like in between. This is the person who says, I'm a Christian, but I do it my own way. There's a lot of people who say it that way. This statement doesn't add up. There is no Christian who is their own Lord. There is no person who says, I do my own thing and I do it my way and I'm a Christian. Because the Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence in every person who is a Christian. The Holy Spirit loves God. The Holy Spirit has inspired God's word. The theological math of it is if that spirit is in us, then I desire to love God according to his word. I have a friend who is now in heaven and was a mentor for me for many years, a very feisty personality, a guy who was a beautiful gift in my life. And one day we were having one of these conversations where his feistiness came out. And he said, well, David, what you're saying right there about that verse, my God didn't like that. And I said, I don't think you get to make up who God is. Like, your God isn't like that? Like, your own personal made-up version? Because that's not what the Holy Spirit is going to bring us to. The Holy Spirit, who is God, who loves God, who's in us and inspired his word, is going to bring us to love God according to his word, not to make it up on our own. So he said, thank you very much. And then... (laughs) But next, the Holy Spirit is going to bring us into this place of adoption and companionship, and resurrection. So here's what I would love for you to know. I'm going to repeat this a couple times because if you don't get anything else out of today, I'd love for you to get this. The Holy Spirit is the midwife of your birth, the companion of your growth, and the resurrector at your death. When it comes to life in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the midwife of your birth, the companion of your growth, and the resurrector at your death. All of this is normal Christianity. See, for me, I wasn't raised with this. Like, I had to learn this. When I was new as a Christian, the Holy Spirit talk was really weird. And the Holy Spirit people I knew were really weird. But Paul is saying very clearly, life in an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit is normal Christianity. So I had a bunch of obstacles to overcome to get here and to try to embrace this reality. Okay, so... The Holy Spirit is our constant companion. Remarkably in these texts, it says the Holy Spirit lives in us. 
It doesn't say he pays us occasional visits. It doesn't say he shows up from time to time like a mysterious friend if we pray hard enough and we're lucky enough to like catch him and reel him in and bring him down. It says he lives in us. Learning how to grow in this relationship with him, which the Apostle Paul is teaching us is normal Christianity, begins to help us understand that Christ by his spirit is in us, the real presence spiritually. If this is brand new for you, I would be saying what I think you may be saying, like what, how, who, what? I get all that. But this is an invitation to a growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. And it may be the most beautiful invitation you or I ever received. So the Holy Spirit is our constant indwelling companion. What does this mean in practical terms? It means, let's say you have a meeting this week and you're going to have to have a hard conversation with somebody. I think we all know how this goes. Most people don't like hard conversations. If you do, it's not a hard conversation, so it doesn't count. Most people don't like hard conversations. So we do what we do with a hard conversation coming. We practice it. We go through our speech and we try it over and over again. And I tell myself, I'm not going to be worried about this. Hey, you know what? I'm just not going to worry about it. And I tell myself that because I know I'm going to be worried about it. I'm just trying to talk myself out of being worried about it. Here's the deal. When you go into that conversation, you and Jesus are going into that conversation because he is in you. The Holy Spirit is the real presence of Christ, and he is in you. He lives in you. He doesn't show up occasionally. He resides in the life of believers. So that means the Holy Spirit is going into that meeting. I remember several years ago, I was going in to have cancer surgery, and I was a little anxious about it, and I'm in the pre-op room, and I was praying about it. And while I was praying about it, I had this very strong sense, David, we are going into surgery in a few minutes. We are going into surgery in a few minutes? Yes, we. Who's we? Jesus. David, you and I are going to have surgery in a little bit. This became very significant for me. The real presence of the Holy Spirit. So I'm not going down into that operating room completely detached and disconnected, a body on a table in Richmond, Virginia in an OR that's going to get cut on. No, Jesus and I are having surgery. I remember this deep sense of peace. And I remember thinking, this is either hocus pocus, weirdo, ridiculous religious talk, or it's true. And I've come to the place in my life where I fundamentally absolutely believe it's true. So I'm getting rolled down toward the OR, and I'm thinking, Jesus and I are getting ready to have surgery together. Now, I didn't like say it to the nurse, because she'd be like, oh, I can see the pre-op anesthesia is already making you loopy. But it's true. If you're going to have surgery, you and Jesus are going to have surgery together. The Holy Spirit's companionship also gives us promptings and awareness. And the more we grow to cultivate an understanding of a deep relationship with the Holy Spirit, the more aware we are of this kind of thing. For example, I think one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to teach us is that there's a lot of spiritual stuff happening all the time. And we might have been looking over here for the thing that we thought was happening when the thing is over here that's the really spiritual thing. Like, what do I mean by that? Let's say you have a meeting at work this week and 
a bunch of new lofty sales goals are being introduced with a new product that's being launched. And the discussion is going to be about the sales goals, the marketing effort, the sales strategies, and the whole bit. And you're in the meeting, and you can tell the manager who's leading the meeting is very, like, uncertain. And something's wrong. And in the meeting, we're talking about strategies and rollouts and budgets, and everybody's talking about strategies and rollouts and budgets. You know what this meeting is about right now? It's about the fear in the manager's heart. It's about what's going on in there. That's where his concern is. He's concerned about something, his reputation, his job, whether we're going to meet the sales quotas. And we're all over here focusing on amount of dollars that goes towards the marketing The Holy Spirit is helping us know there's spiritual stuff happening. The meeting's happening here. Do you know what's in the room right here? It's over here. You're having a conversation with your 17-year-old, and it's bumpy and challenging. And the 17-year-old wants to go to a party that's maybe not such a good idea. And you guys are getting upset with each other. And all of the energy is focused on the party. The spiritual thing happening in the world is for you as the parent, finding a peace in your identity that doesn't have to be so attached to your child. And for the 17-year-old who really, really wants to go to the party that your parent doesn't want them to go to, it's finding a peace in your identity that doesn't have to show up in Instagram posts from the party. So we're like having the argument. We think the argument's what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. There's something much deeper in the spiritual work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you, the parent, and in you, the 17-year-old, that's going on. This is life in the Holy Spirit. And what we're invited to do is cultivate this life in the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? Like any relationship, you spend more and more and more time together. I would encourage you as a simple spiritual discipline this week, just one step to help you move in this direction. Whenever you pray, pray to the Holy Spirit. Most of us aren't used to this. When most of us pray, we pray to Jesus or we pray to God the Father. I want to encourage you as you pray this week, whenever you pray, be very distinctive about praying to the Holy Spirit. And I think as you do this, you're just going to begin to have new glimmers of growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. And this might lead to more things that are beautiful. So there's a paradox in the Christian life. And the paradox is when you receive Christ you are given the Holy Spirit. But it required the Holy Spirit for you to be able to receive Christ. So we want to say, well, which is it? Do I get the Holy Spirit when I say yes to Jesus, or was it the Holy Spirit who brought me to say yes to Jesus? And you know what the answer is. Yes. This is the way it often is with God, where spiritual realities are operative. How can it be that when you receive Christ, you get the Holy Spirit, but it took the Holy Spirit to enable you to receive Christ? For me, my favorite analogy is like the analogy of a sponge on the kitchen counter. If there's a bunch of water on the kitchen counter and that sponge is bone dry, let's call that your heart, and you are wanting to soak up the living water on the counter, if the sponge is bone dry and you move it through the water, it just pushes the water around. There's no receptivity for the water. So what has to happen for that sponge to soak up the water? Ironically, it has to get wet. The sponge has to get water in it in order to soak up the larger amount of water. And so if that sponge analogy is our heart, the Holy Spirit gives us enough moisture 
to say yes to Jesus, whereby we now move into soaking up the much greater amount of the living water as we grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. normal Christianity. All right, then he says this brings us to be children of God. And he uses the word Abba, Father. I've learned this word many years ago. The word Abba is an Aramaic word. It's still the word that kids in the Middle East use for their father today. So I've studied it a lot. You know, I've talked about it in sermons. I remember the first time I was in Israel several years ago, and I heard little kids calling their father Abba. It's not, they don't say it like Abba like we do, like the 70s band. They say it more like Abba, Abba, Abba. And you hear a little kid say Abba, Abba when he wants his dad's attention. But the word Abba, people say it's like our word daddy, kind of, but not really. The word Abba has a sense of love and respect and affection woven through it. And it's the three that make it beautiful. And the respect part may be one that we may be missing. Sometimes if we call daddy, daddy, we have this sense of daddy and I are pals. Abba would never say he's my pal. Abba would always see him with a high elevated position of respect. But you see, it's that high position of respect combined with love and affection that makes for the beauty of the whole thing. So we are able now to call God our father. Here's a challenge for many of us. We have a lot of father obstacles to overcome when we think about calling God our father. Many of us have had challenges with our fathers one way or another. Hopefully they're challenges in the normal range, but some have had brutally difficult, abusive challenges with their father. So what do we do then if someone says we're being invited to call God our father if I've got father obstacles? But you know, all of us hoped and wanted more one way or another from our father. More understanding, more appreciation, more affirmation. And you know what you begin to realize as the years go by? And your father wanted that from his father. And his father wanted that from his father. And his father wanted that from his father. Jesus is the first person, as far as all religions know, to call God Father. And he introduced this first in the Lord's Prayer. You know it when he said, Our Abba, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Nobody had ever heard a person refer to God as Abba before. In studying this, commentators say, James Boyce says this about it, scholars agree that three things are indisputable when Jesus refers to God as Father. The title was new with Jesus. Jesus always used this form of address in praying. And beautifully, Jesus authorized his disciples, that's us, to use the same word after him. And finally, we come to the suffering part. Wait, wait, we're Americans. We don't want to talk about suffering, right? There's, there's suffering involved? There is, but it's totally different than you know. It's totally different than the way you've ever thought of it. This is suffering with love as the main foundational centerpiece. If we're children, we're heirs. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see, what it's saying is when Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit, you never suffer alone. You are never a disconnected, detached person who's floating in the ether alone. When Christ is in us by the Holy Spirit, living in us, not occasionally visiting us, we never suffer alone. 
When you hear people say occasionally it was such senseless suffering, often what they mean is it was suffering without clarity of purpose or meaning. But once Christ lives in you and me, there is no longer suffering without purpose or meaning. Because any of our suffering will draw us closer to Jesus, who the Bible tells us is the suffering servant. And whenever we suffer, Jesus will draw closer to us in his love. So when we suffer, we have an opportunity to grow closer to Jesus, and Jesus grows fuller and richer in our experience. And it has love all woven through the center of it. Do you know that suffering is transformed into something completely different if love is at the center of it? What do I mean by that? Occasionally you've heard or maybe you've said, a parent who has a child who's in a very difficult situation, maybe it's a health issue, maybe something else, and the parent says, if I could trade places with them and take their suffering, I would do it in a minute. I mean, who says I would be happy to take someone else's suffering? You would only say that if you had such a deep love for the person who's suffering that you would willingly take it upon yourself. Oh, does that mean it's not going to hurt? No, it's going to hurt. But it's laden and saturated with love, which makes the hurt a completely different thing. It's brimming with the meaning and the beauty of love. I have a friend who's going to have a kidney transplant or given a new kidney in a couple of weeks. He told me recently that months ago, a guy in his Bible study said to him, hey, if I'm a match, I would like to give you a kidney. And lo and behold, he is a match. And lo and behold, he's going to be giving him a kidney in a couple of weeks. Now, why do you do that? I don't know the details, but I've heard that donating a kidney is no picnic that the surgical procedure and the recovery isn't really very fun. Why would you do that? You're willing to do it because love is woven through the entirety of it. Suffering without love is just awful. Suffering saturated with love is a completely different thing altogether. It's brimming with the presence and the redemption of God. And when the Holy Spirit is in us, we're being told that we share in his sufferings and he shares in ours, brimming with the redemptive presence of God. The Holy Spirit is the midwife of your birth, the companion of your growth, and the resurrector at your death. And all of this life that we come into with God is brought to us courtesy of the Holy Spirit.